grab your Bibles, if you will, stand with me. Now that you've sat down, I can get you up again. Again, we have to get you the exercise you do not get at home. So uh, it's very important that you do get some, your blood moving once in a while. It's, it's really key. We are in Luke chapter 15. We're doing the second portion. Uh, really, uh, this is a two-part study on the prodigal son. I call it the study of the prodigal because both of the son and the father, you would say, are prodigals in the sense that one is extremely wasteful, the other is extremely loving and compassionate. And that's kind of where that word comes from. But um, we're just going to read through this portion at verse 11 as we get here. Beginning at verse 11, and he said, a man had two sons... The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out as one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am here dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. And so he got up, he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his head and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants who began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, well, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for many years I've been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, 
has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Maybe seated. Today we're going to be looking at the second portion of this powerful parable. As we said last week, at some point you're going to find yourself identifying with the prodigal son. I asked, I think it was second service last week, how many of you can relate to the story of the prodigal son? A lot of hands went up. A lot of us can relate to a time when we were in rebellion against God and by God's grace he received us to himself. But when you come to this second portion of the story, I think a lot of us will be surprised at how much we actually relate to the story of the older brother that is told here. As we have seen already that all three of the parables in chapter 15, the parable lost sheep of the lost coin and the lost son, were all instigated because of the movement of the Pharisees and the scribes that complained against Jesus because of his associations. They didn't like the fact that Jesus actually hung around sinners and tax collectors. They resented it. But even more so, they resented that he would eat with them, which in that culture meant you're becoming one with them. And so we saw in the parable of the lost sheep that it was a shepherd had a hundred sheep and one of them strayed away. And so the shepherd, knowing that the sheep was lost, he left the 99, he went out in search, he left his sheep in an open pasture, safe and sound. But he went out in search of that one lamb. And as he found that one lamb, he was so filled with joy, he threw it over his shoulders, brought it back to the flock where it could be safe. And there he called together all of his neighbors all of his friends, that they might come and celebrate that he had found his lost sheep. And the parable of the lost coin, when the woman realizes that one of her special 10 coins is lost, one out of 10, she too is overwhelmed and goes on a mad search to make sure she finds that one coin. And so she searched and she searched, and when she finally found that one coin, she too was overfilled with joy and began to call the neighbors together and everyone, I found my coin, it's, it's found. Now, in both of those parables, we saw that they expressed the joy of heaven when just one sinner repents and is reconciled to God. They've received his forgiveness, his grace. Now, again, I refer to this third parable as the parable of the prodigal because it could refer to either the son or the father but as we saw in the parable of the prodigal in the first portion of this wealthy father who has two sons, but they both needed to learn a lot about their father that they didn't know. Neither of them really had a good grasp on the nature and the character of their father, and so really this story tells us how they learn. One day we were told the younger son came to his father and he asked him for his portion of his estate. He wanted to have it early so that he could spend it while he was yet young enough to enjoy it. As we said, that would have been at that time, the, the, the first older son would have received two-thirds of the inheritance while the younger son had one-third. So he received his one-third. His father gave it to him. And in so many ways, for him to come and ask his father for his inheritance early was really a great sign of disrespect, as we saw. It was like saying, Dad, I really don't care if you die. 
What I need right now is my portion of the inheritance so I can use it while I'm still young enough to enjoy it. But for whatever reason, the father yields to the son, he gives him his third portion, and he quickly, within a matter of days, he takes all of his money and he takes all of his portion and he heads off on a far-off journey to a far-off land where he lives among the Gentiles. Finally, the son is free. He finally has what he's always been looking for. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. He sees himself as a free man. And we saw that live it up, he did. And for a season of time, he filled his life with all the pleasures of his passions. He used his vast resources and gathered many new friends. He became a hit with the women. He was a life at the party until he squandered it all away, leaving him penniless, friendless, and homeless. He found himself broke. Adding insult to injury, we are told that at that same time in the parable that there's a famine in the, in the land, which causes the whole country to now live in fear. So in desperation, now deserted by his newfound friends, the son found himself hiring himself out as a day laborer to one of the countrymen, where he was hired to do that critically important, wonderful job of feeding the swine. As a Jew, as we said, he never had known or understood before what pigs were like. He had never been around pigs. You see, for Jews, Pigs are unclean. You can neither eat them nor can you sacrifice them. But it did not take the son too long to figure out why they were considered unclean. He saw them gladly, filthy, wallowing in the mud and willing to eat just about anything. And soon the son found himself alone. He was deserted. He was destitute among these dirty, filthy pigs just to survive. Becoming so hungry that he actually began to desire the food of the pigs. And there he sat there in a pigsty with his pigs around him. And we're told that he finally came to his senses. He came to himself. He returns, his reasoning began to be restored. And he realized how far he had gone from his father. He thought and he remembered about home. He no doubt forgot about the comfort, the food, thinking about even the goodness of his father and knowing that his father's hired hands ate far better than he did as a free man with the pigs. And so he decided that it was best to humble himself, knowing enough about his father that he was indeed a good man, that he could at least return home if he would just humbly humble himself, that perhaps maybe his father maybe wouldn't restore him as a son, but maybe he would hire him on as one of his hired hands. And we're told that all the way back, he began to rehearse this speech that he had made for his father. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I know I don't deserve 
your love. I know I don't deserve to be restored as a son, but, but at least would you give me the right to become one of your hired servants? Now, the parable tells us that while the son was a far way out, that his father looked out on the horizon, and there he could see his son returning home in a distance. It would seem that this had been the practice of the father for quite a long time, that daily, maybe sometimes hourly, he would look out on the horizon just wondering, will today be the day would, would in fact his son come home? And he looks and he looks and looks, but this one day he looks, and out on the distance he sees that figure beginning to come home. And he sees enough of the sun in the distance that he realizes that he looks broken, that he looks dejected, he looks thin. He can see that his clothes are tattered and torn, and that he's covered with filth. And we're told that he had compassion for him. And that even while the sun was a long way off at a distance, that the father took off running. And he ran toward his son. And when he reached him, he threw his big arms around him. And he embraced him and he hugged him and he kissed him over and over again. Now, unlike the parable of the lost sheep, which strayed perhaps by ignorance, maybe by carelessness, or the lost coin that may have been lost accidentally, or maybe by neglect, the lost son had chosen willfully to lose himself. He had made this decision all by himself. Unlike the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, the father did not go out and search for his son. Rather, we find he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he prayed that his lost son would return home. And so when the father came running to the son with all of his love and his open arms of welcome, I think it must have taken that son by surprise because he knew that he was so undeserving. And so he began to give his speech to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I don't even deserve to be called your son. And the father cut him off. Didn't even let him finish his speech. The father called out to the servants quickly. He says, go and find the finest robe, clothe him with it. Put a ring on his finger, the symbol of sonship. And I want you to put sandals on his feet, evidence the father receives him as a son and not as a servant. And slaughter the fattened calf when reserved for a very special festivity like this. And like the prodigal of lost sheep and the lost coin, there was a great celebration. Tremendous joy that the son that was lost had come home. That which was lost is now found. Let us eat, the father says, and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And as I said, I believe that the response of the father is really the key lesson in the whole parable. That the parable emphasizes the gracious character of the father, which neither of the sons understood fully that he is merciful, that he is compassionate, that he is gracious, he is forgiving. But it highlights the joy of the Father in all of heaven when one lost sinner repents and is reconciled to God. You see, this is the one thing that angered the Pharisees and Sadducees about Jesus. 
They resented him. They resented him because he has this heart. But the reason they do so is that they don't know the heart of the Father. And because they haven't understood the heart of the Father, they cannot understand the, the, the heart of his Son. They have no understanding. And as, as important, as beautiful as the parable of reconciliation is, notice that Jesus did not leave it there. He could have just stopped the story. It's beautiful. But he went on. Because there's something else that needed to be learned. He goes on to tell the story of the older brother's response to the father's mercy and forgiveness toward his lost son. And it may be this last portion, but God has a word to say to some of us here this morning that is so critically important that we understand the heart of the father. In verse 25, now his older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So here is the story of the older brother. When his younger brother returns home, the older brother is not even around. You see, he's been busy working out in the field. He's been taking care of the farm. After all, the rest of the inheritance belongs to him, and he knows it. No doubt he has had an extra burden on his plate ever since his little stupid brother left. And so he's had to work doubly hard just to make sure everything's been taken care of. And as an older brother returning home, from a hard day's work, he notices things are a little bit strange today. Even from a distance, he begins to hear a music playing. And as he gets closer and closer, he begins to see that it's not just music, but some of the neighbors are at the house. Some of their friends have gathered together and everyone seems to be enjoying themselves. They're, they're laughing, they're in great joy. His father, he sees, he's in great spirits. He hasn't seen him like this for so long. He saw the fattened calf roasting on the open fire and he smells the barbecue. He goes, oh man, something great's going on. He knows it has to be a celebration, but why? Maybe he thinks this is a surprise party for him. That he's the one they're all waiting for. And so he goes and he grabs one of the servants and says, hey man, tell me what this is all about. And the servant began to share the good news. Oh, didn't you know today's a great day? It's a great day. That little brother of yours, he came home safe and sound and your father is so filled with joy today and so happy that he's called all of us to come and join in this celebration of his return. But we're told in verse 28, but he became angry and was not willing to go in and his father came out and began pleading with him. Now you would have thought that perhaps the older brother would have himself been happy that his younger brother had returned. That he would have received this with good news, but no. 
this is not good news for him. In fact, he was infuriated and he was angry, terribly upset, embittered, so angry that he would refuse to go in and be a part of the celebration. And notice the father has to go out to his older son and begin to plead with him. I want you to keep in mind here that no one has suffered more hurt and greater loss than the father has suffered when his son left. It was the father who suffered the most. But when the son came home in repentance, the father chose to forgive him and welcome him. In verse 29, but he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years, I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you'd never give me so much as a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, you devoured your, who devoured your wealth and the prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And here is the pathetic picture of the older brother. He finds himself filled with resentment, with bitterness, not only against his stupid little brother, but against his father. And he sits there and he is sulking in self-pity. He feels cheated. He feels robbed. He feels wronged. I mean, can you imagine what he would have said to his brother had he met him first? Oh, so now you come back. Things didn't work out so good for you like you thought, huh? Well, listen, little brother. You're not welcome around here. You broke your father's heart. You made a mess of everything. You only want more money. You're just in need. Listen, you just need to go find your way. But that's not what happened. The father found him first. No, in his mind, the father is celebrating the wrong son. You see, what he thinks is, well, I, I was a loyal and faithful son. I did everything that you told me to do without complaining. And when that son of yours, when he left you high and dry, it was me. I was the one here having to pick up all the slack. And I'm the one who stuck it out with you when everyone else was leaving. I'm the one who didn't desert you. I'm the one who didn't insult you, who didn't disgrace you. I'm not the one who hurt you so deeply. And I'm not the one who left you days without eating or sleeping. No, I stayed home and I worked hard all this time, faithfully doing everything that was given to me. I worked hard just to keep things afloat. It was me. And yet even me as the deserving son, you disgrace me like this. Why you have never so much as even offered me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Why should I have to share my estate with someone who has wasted their own? And how could you be receiving, so receiving of this idiot son of yours who brought you nothing but disgrace and hurt and shame, who only mocked your goodness while he was home? And yet when he shows up, and I like it, he says, this pathetic son of yours. Notice he doesn't even refer to him as his brother. No, he's that son of yours. 
He comes home after squandering everything and you just simply welcome him back into the house and you forgive him and you throw a celebration. Father, you are unjust. This isn't fair. You're not fair. I am the rightful son who deserves your reward. And so here is the older son embittered. He is resentful toward his father because of his open display of forgiveness and grace toward his stupid little brother who isn't worth anything. But just like his brother, he finds himself at a far distance away from his father. Oh, not physically. But there's now a chasm between them. In verse 31, the father said to him, Son, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Now, this is how I hear the father in my own mind. Son, I hear what you're saying. And I understand perhaps why you're so frustrated. Don't you know I have two sons? And I love you both. And son, can't you really realize how blessed you've been to stay home? That while he was out there being stupid, that while he was out there making a mess of his life and playing with pigs in the mud, that you were here and you were eating well. And you had a bed to sleep in. Everything I have belongs to you. And that's really true because the rest of the inheritance did belong to the older son. It was, in fact, all his. But when this foolish brother comes home, can't you see? I had to celebrate. You see, he was dead. And now he's alive again. He was lost but now he's found. I love him. How could a loving, gracious father not celebrate the return of a prodigal son? You see, the parable tells us the story of two sons who find themselves at a distance from their father, but only one son comes to see it. In truth, In the story, they have both disgraced their father. One with his rebellion, the other with his bitter attitudes. Neither the sons knows or understands the essence or the depth of their father's character or forgiveness of, of mercy and of love. But it is the younger son who had squandered everything who ultimately comes to terms with the benevolent character of his father. And he was the one who received the great joy. Which brings us all the way back to the Pharisees and the scribes where this story began. And their resentment toward Jesus because of his heart for tax collectors and sinners. Now there is no doubt about it. The tax collectors and the sinners were indeed guilty of great sins. Outward sins that you could see so easily. Things that everybody would say, hey, this isn't right. But the Pharisees and the scribes, you see, were guilty too, but only of inward sins of the spirit. Their outward actions may have appeared blameless, but their inward attitudes 
of, was a sinful act and disgrace against their father. They resented Jesus. Why would he ever give attention to these willful, vile sinners who have chosen this life of sin? Well, here they are, the righteous ones who have been faithfully sticking to the script and following all the rules. They didn't have the heart of the Father because they had no understanding of the rot in their own hearts. They honestly believed in their own hearts they deserved the favor and the grace of God. After all, they're following all the rules. And you see here they're guilty of tremendous sins of self-righteousness and pride and unforgiveness and envy and jealousy and bitterness and all the time they can't even see it. They're blinded to their condition. But even more, they actually believe they deserve God's goodness. That they deserve it because they were such good people. They sought their lives to live their lives within their lines. And they're so earnest for their lines, they actually make up new lines just to make sure they stay in the first lines. That's how zealous they have been. You see, they figure God owes them. They're entitled to his favor because of their own works and of their own self-righteousness. But, but grace, the kind that you find in the gospel message of Jesus, is unmerited favor with an unconditional love, one that you cannot earn, one that you cannot buy. It is unmerited because the Bible shows that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, not even one. There's nobody who deserves in truth, the father is the same father for both of his sons. He joyfully loves lavishing them both with good things, but one of the sons finds himself bitter. And it's the elder son who couldn't understand or grasp the concept of grace and what it means. Years ago, I heard another parable, parable of a gracious, and generous, wealthy man who had walked into a neighborhood of poverty and want. And one day he walked up to a door of one of the houses there and he knocked on the door and was answered by a poor, struggling woman. And there he handed her a crisp, new $100 bill. And of course she was overwhelmed with his generosity and of his kindness and she was filled with joy and gratitude that he would be so generous to come to her house that he would pick out her place and that he would show such kindness to hers. But this went on for months and every week. Near the same time, the generous man would walk up to that same door and he'd offer another crisp $100 bill. And every week it was received with mercy and with gratitude and joy. And soon the woman finds herself waiting outside, just waiting with expectation for the money to come. However, on one particular day, she looked outside and she saw that generous man at the house next door. And he saw that he was giving the neighbor the $100 bill. And she became very frustrated and very angry. She soon found herself going out and calling out to the man, hey, where's my money? 
It belongs to me. It doesn't belong to them. You see, what begins as a benevolent act of generosity and grace soon becomes an entitlement. The belief that somehow it's owed you. Somehow it's supposed to be just yours. And somewhere along the line, her heart became tainted and spoiled. And rather than be grateful for what she's been given, she resents when she sees someone else receiving what she thinks belongs to her. Do you know that everything that we have is a gift of God? Everything he's entrusted to us is a gift. That he owes none of us anything. That we are all here by grace, his unmerited favor. None of us paid for it. None of us earned it. He doesn't owe any of us. And at first, when we first came to the Lord, we were so grateful that he would have anything to do with us. We were so happy that he would love us and forgive us. But along the way, something happens terrible if we're not careful. We begin to take his grace for granted. And it doesn't take too much for all of a sudden pride to kind of settle in there and then some self-righteousness. And we start reasoning to ourselves what good people we are. We read the Bible more. It's a good thing. It's really a good thing. We go to church more often, and that's a good thing. You put money in the offering, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. And you know, the best thing is you walk within the lines. You follow all the rules. Why, you become a good person. And it starts to dawn upon you, you know, I'm really a pretty good person now. I'm doing pretty good. I'm not like those other people. I see them out there. We start measuring God's goodness by how we think we're deserving of his goodness. I better be good if I want God to do something good for me. And sometimes we see other people out there and we don't like it because we think they're walking outside the lines, especially our lines. And we get resentful when we see good things happening to them. Or if we see God pouring out his grace upon them, it's, it's not too hard to get embittered. I mean, God, don't you know who they are? <laughs> They're not like me. They don't read their Bible as much as me. They haven't been as faithful as me. I mean, this isn't really fair. And at that point, when you see that this has come upon your heart, you've become just like a Pharisee and a scribe. It's taken root in your heart, this thing called self-righteousness. And what a hideous sin it is because so often we're so blinded to it when it takes root in our own hearts. At its root is this pride, the sense of superiority and entitlement that you think what belongs to you and with it comes that unforgiving, bitter attitude toward others who don't measure up and especially those who have hurt us so badly. Now for us, we don't call these things sins. No, for us, these are just struggles, you see. These are just little 
blemishes, but they're not really that serious. And it's not so bad if I, a little jealousy and a little bitterness. I mean, if we kind of pass that off, but man, them, they're really awful. You know, I've learned that you'll never know really the depth of your own spiritual condition and maturity until you see how well you respond to God blessing other people who you don't think deserve it. You know, it's easy to say, we want revival. Lord, start with me. Lord, start in our church, we want revival. But how do we feel if God should choose to start the revival in the church down the street? What if he chooses to bless those people? And we've been so faithful. We've been so good. How do we feel when we see undeserving sinners basking in the goodness of God's grace while we're struggling? God, why should they be blessed? They don't deserve it. Not after I've been faithful all this time. Lord, don't save them. No, no, don't save them. Don't want them in the family. They're not good. People, this is so real. Did you know that? It breaks my heart because it's been such a part of my life so much of the time. But I've had to fight it with myself. This hideous sin of self-righteousness pounding at the heart's door. Oh, listen, it's not as overt as some of those outward sins, but it is just as powerful and just as destructive because the moment you take your eyes off of Jesus and you start looking at yourselves and your own performance as a measurement of his goodness, you have just become like the older brother in this story. And there is no greater affront to God's benevolent grace that's found in Jesus than when self-righteousness takes root in your heart. Many years ago, before our children were born, I had some hard spiritual lessons I had to learn and I don't at all mean to intimidate, I'm not still learning them, I am learning. But it was a hard time. But yet for me, in so many ways, I thought it was the best time. You see, I decided to get really serious about my relationship with God. And I surrendered everything to him. I was done with sin. I, we took our television, we put it in the closet, no more, we're done. I woke up early every morning, spent several hours in prayer and reading the Bible before I went to work. I read the Bible more than anybody that I knew. I was determined to become a holy, holy man. But I didn't understand what true holiness was. And so I found myself becoming more and more judgmental of others who weren't as righteous as me they're not walking within my lines. They're watching their TVs, those hideous, evil people. <laughs> and they're not reading their Bible like me. Not surprisingly, soon I found myself bitter with no joy. I became very harsh and critical toward others. You see, I'd become a miserable, holy man. And one night... 
the Holy Spirit lovingly took me to his spiritual woodshed where he lovingly made me face the man I'd become. I'd gone to this revival meeting and there they ushered up this old, I mean old, 95-year-old man to speak. His name was Roy Hessian. He had written a book called Calvary Road, which, by the way, great book. I buy them by the hundreds. And I never forget sitting there feeling very smug, judgmental. What can this old man teach me? But the old Holy Spirit used him that night to awaken myself not only of the tremendous grace of God, but the hideousness of my self-righteousness. And I repented. And I was broken. I remember that night, I wept all the way to our house, a good 25-minute drive. And when I got home, I threw my arms around Janet and I repented to her. And the next day, when it was daylight, I called everybody that knew and I repented to them for the monster that I had become, thinking I had been so spiritual. And I learned God's grace in a whole new way. But I was away, amazed at how subtle the enemy could be to take some, a noble ambition. I just wanted to be good enough for God. I wanted to make him proud of me. I wanted to make sure that I lived in a way that he would just look at Doug. He's doing so good, man. I could give him everything. But I learned I couldn't perform for him. All I could do is rest in him and the grace that he given to me. You see, it's become such a thing for me, it's actually hard for me to be harsh with judgmental people because I've spent so much time being one. I know what it is. You see, I've lived this. I have been both the younger brother and the older brother. And I've been both the prodigal son and the self-righteous Pharisees and the scribes. I know this. I have to fight against this every day of my life. And what I have to do and what I've learned I have to do is every single day, I have to refresh myself in the truth of this gospel and relating what Jesus has done for me and that I cannot perform for God. Oh, I can live holy and I should. And we should live as good as we can and it's good to read his word. But you have to be careful of the subtleties when it becomes a matter of you looking to yourself for God's acceptance. What is interesting about this parable to me is that it leaves you hanging. Did you notice that? There's no real resolve. We don't know. He doesn't tell us what the brother did. There's a lot of stories that Jesus tells like this, or he doesn't tell you what happened afterwards, you know, the rich young ruler and so many others. You don't know what happened. I think Jesus did that deliberately on purpose because he wanted you to wrestle with it. Because he wanted you to see what it was like for you no matter where you find yourself today, you all come, have to come to terms with the truth about yourself and the truth about God.
The Apostle Paul, in 1 Timothy 1.15, says this to Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Wow. The Apostle Paul? Oh, I could understand if he says, I was chief. But he says, I am chief. And here's one who knew being a Pharisee well. He knew, the, he knew what it was like to be a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. And here we are today, all of us, because of the goodness and the grace of God. But I have to tell you, we have to fight with the Pharisee. It's an ugly person. It's an ugly character. You know, when you go through this chapter, you realize that everybody in the chapter experiences joy except for the older brother. Think about it. The shepherd, the woman, all their friends, they share in the joy of finding what is lost. The younger son experiences the joy of returning to his father and being received. The father experiences the joy of receiving his son, but the elder brother who would not forgive and resents his father and his brother has no joy. Did he repent? We don't know, but let me ask you, would you? You see, what you learn in this is this. It's possible for us elder brothers to leave the father without leaving the farm. Our Kent Hughes wrote this. He said, our spiritual temper or temperature is a highly personal matter. The main thing we must remember is that he who fails to recognize himself fails to recognize God. Let me ask you, are you living in a far off country? like the younger brother missing the grace of God, or are you living in self-righteousness, missing the grace of God, because you've lost sight of the fact that you are here solely by his grace. You see, neither of the sons had the power to change the character of their father. The father is just who he was. And our father is just who he is a merciful and gracious, loving Father, when we repent, what joy. And you know that you don't repent once. No, you don't. We got to repent often because there's things in us that can get so ugly. But I have to give you good news today, even as the older brother, because if you repent, he's there to embrace you because he loves you. And he wants to change you and actually fill your life with joy. That's what he wants for you. And he's here to forgive us and lavish us with his love and grace. Not because we deserve it, but because that's who he is. That's who he is. And today we celebrate the grace and the forgiveness of God. We're going to do it in communion. I love this. You know why communion is so special? And why he said do this often? Because he knows we lose sight. It reminds us 
that this grace, this salvation is all about him and what he did for us. And so today as we wait upon the Lord and Josh is gonna come out and we're gonna worship a little bit, but we're gonna eat and we're gonna drink as a testimony of our faith of saying we still believe and maybe if you're here this morning and you're the younger brother or the older brother and the Lord's saying, hey, you gotta repent, that you repent this morning and that you enjoin yourself to fellowship with the Lord the way it's supposed to be. And maybe leave here today in the joy of the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your presence here. Lord, we thank you for the word that you've given to us and even the conviction of it. Lord, I know even as I was preparing, God, you were dealing with my heart. I pray today, Father, that you would minister to us, Lord, even as we come to you humbly and we confess to you once again, Lord, that we know without doubt, Lord, this is your work. Lord, that we are here because of your goodness and because of your grace, which you have lavished upon us through Jesus. And so, Lord, as we wait together as a body, Lord, I pray that you, Lord, just bring us into a very special place with you just to refresh ourselves once again and the wonderful grace that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord.